What? Say I'm hitting record. Oh, okay. I'm sorry, my mouth is full. Yeah, you sound you sound like you, those are the dulcet tones of a mm. man eating rugula. Because <laughs> mm. <laughs> you are eating Zabar's rugula. One of the best things to happen to us on the show, happened. which we didn't really anticipate. No, that people would send us good stuff. Yeah, and, and other uh, than great emails, which li- they also send. Uh, listener Adam sent a, a a a gift package with coffee and a mug and yeah. and this uh, what do you call this thing? Rugula. Is that that's different than arugula, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, arugula mm. is a species of lettuce. Uh, I, this is just that was well pronounced. You got good articulation today. Thank Joe. you. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is uh, Zabar's. Uh, he's some, the the gift box is from Zabar's. Mm-hmm. And one of the things in the gift box is a bag of cinnamon uh, rugula, which is a little pastry um, of some ethnic variety, uh, common in, in in New York delis. I posted I posted a picture of this gift uh, box on on Twitter right before the show. Oh, do we it, have it a Twitter account? Does oh, yeah, oral yeah. argument yeah. have a Twitter yeah. account? Yeah. Oral argument. Wow. Boom, one word. That's awesome. Oral argument. Yeah. So someone who wants to see this, some of this fabulous Zabar's package could. Uh, Check out that Twitter account. Follow us on Twitter. And I'll probably will post it to the Facebook, too. If you like us on Facebook, it makes us look like we have, you know, more followers. I guess so. Yeah. yeah. More people who listen to the show. I don't want a follower. I want someone who listens to the show. Yeah, because all of our listeners are leaders. <laughs> Thank you for finishing up with the cheesiest version of that. Because <laughs> I, I left it kind of hanging out there. I, I specialize in that. Yeah. I specialize in that. Well, um, I had a lot of good cheeses last night. A lot of good cheeses? Mm-hmm. How did you? Uh, uh, how did you have a lot of good cheeses? Well, uh, you know, one of the things I auctioned off this year for our um, Equal Justice Foundation, the kind of um, you know the student auction, public interest student auction kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, public interest scholarships uh, was a movie night at my house. Nice. So I had some students come over. I made a pasta dish. I got some wines and I had some nice cheeses and stuff. It's great. So did you, did you bur- did you supply the cheese or were they forced to provide? No, cheese? no, <laughs> that's right. They bid on stuff and then I make them do all the work. No, no, I, I bought all this stuff. Yeah. They paid a good amount of money, so I, you That's know, I, great. I bought some good things. And, and you watched a movie. We watched a movie. Really enjoyed that. Okay. Uh, that was fun. It was uh, Lori Ringhan's favorite, um, Interstellar. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. You know how much she's into that yeah, movie. Yeah, it's one of her favorite films. It's really, you know. <laughs> I do love that movie. and um, I enjoyed this, it quite a lot. Um, this, and this is saying a lot about Lori. That, that, that the fact that she hates that movie is the worst thing about her. <laughs> <laughs> next time she's on we'll have to talk to her about that she won't come on if if, if we say that we're going to talk about that she won't come she on she doesn't have to she doesn't want to i'm just saying if she were here next time she's on if she wants to talk about that she could oh that's i don't true. think we should make her talk about it yeah. and she she doesn't listen to the show so she won't know but that's what i'm saying next time yeah. she's on we can we'll just start talking about it. about it we're not going to tell her in advance we're going to talk about it okay yeah although dan listens to the show listen so to he dan. might so he might let her know yeah and he's a yeah. friend of hers so, right. um, okay. Uh, so what are we going to do today? I've, I've got, I've got one thing. Got a fantastic guest. Yeah. Awesome guest. Do you want to, do you want to say his name? Um, cause I don't think we said, <laughs> he said his name at one point. He said his full name. Okay. He, his name is, uh, is Woodrow Herzog, Woodrow Herzog, although he goes by Woody. Is it Herzog or Hartzog? It's Hartzog. Okay. I'm, I'm sorry. How I'm, could you get that? Cause I'm, <laughs> I'm very confused now. Hartzog. Woody yeah. Hartzog. You have a hard time with last names. I'm known to have a hard time with Which last Which you names. also call surnames. They are surnames. You're the kind of person who says surname. Thank you. I'm the kind of person who says last name. Yeah. This is one of the differences between us, Joe. 
I okay. Hmm. Now I don't insist on the highly antiquated uh, reference of the phrase uh, Christian name as opposed to first name. There mm-hmm. are some people who ha- used to say that to mean someone's first name. Right. I don't say that. No, because it doesn't I, make any sense. I say surname. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Do you say given name? Oh, that could be, that's a nice alternative. See, first name, last name. There's no reason to use any other phrase for this. Uh, like everything else is name. just nonsense. So um, we've received two uh, wonderful emails that I would like to talk about. Okay. Uh, one is from a listener whose given name is Steve. <laughs> 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 uh, a former student of mine who was simply, you know, uh, now, so Steve got in touch with us by emailing oral argument podcast at gmail.com, is which that is right? where you can, which is where a person can email us mm-hmm. relating to the show. All one word, no funny business. Correct. Mm-hmm. Uh, and listener Adam discovered there was a limit to the funny business. He apparently he had too many dots. When but, he informed us a package was coming, which by the way, oh, those things are delicious. There's so much good stuff in there. There's coffee in there's there. There's amazing stuff. There's in a here. coffee mug. There's chocolate. It's fantastic. I mean, this what is a, so much better than anything we um, deserve. Would imagine people would be sending us. This is crazy. Yeah, it's it's great. It's great. Um, um, so thank you, listener Adam. Amazing. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Delicious. Listen, listener Steve, um, a, a former student of mine, um, a, a student uh, who I had at Lewis and Clark. Okay. When I taught at that law school. Okay. Um, in the past. Uh, he just is relating that he really enjoys the podcast. Awesome. So he was just thanking us for it, and that's awesome. This is terrific. So he had you as a student, and he's he's seeking out more, seeking out more Joe. I guess that's yeah, weird. Which is that's sort weird, of bizarre. Yeah. Um, if you think about it, mm-hmm. uh, and I have. <laughs> <laughs> and so he finished up law school, and he's taken the bar, and now he's out there and doing his thing. And I just think that's wonderful. So thank you, Steve. I think that's and, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we also got um, a, an email from even further away. You know, Oregon's on the other side of the country. Mm-hmm. Now, wait, you're not to, you're not talking about North Dakota here, are you? No, no, we haven't heard from any of those blasted people. <laughs> we got we had one listener. Doubt we ever w- will. one download from North Dakota. I don't think they cared for it. Haven't been back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. But you know, but we're mutual in North Dakota. So if we're not popular in North Dakota, is there another northern location where we are popular? Yes, Joe? Oslo, Norway. There we go. Boom. Yeah, yeah. So. Take that, North Dakota. <laughs> so tell me about this one. So listener Anthony uh, also wanted to thank us uh, for the show, which uh, he was very generous with his thanks. We're and, big with Anthony's. I don't know if you noticed this. Show. Anthony Christ is also a right. friend of the show. It's, yeah. it's something about big with the listener. Yeah, listener Adam. That's yeah, the the name Adam is almost Anthony. It might as well be Anthony. So yeah, you know, it's all except Anthony's. that it's totally different. But yeah, it starts with but, an A, but largely the same. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> go, go ahead. So uh, go ahead, caller. Yeah. First time listener, last time caller. Um, <laughs> the the uh, the email from Anthony uh, relates in particular one one thing in particular that he relates is that um, uh, so he's a political scientist. Okay, uh, and one thing that we really enjoy is thinking about the fact that you know there are a lot of people out there who have an interest in law but who aren't lawyers or law students or law professors or what have you. Mm-hmm. And law is very accessible in many ways. In some ways, it's not. In some ways, it is. And lots of people have an interest in it. And it, law is, after all, the technology of social life. And so, you know, it's not surprising that a lot of people are interested in the it. The software on which civilization runs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's really cool. And, um, and so, in a way, he was connecting with that in terms yeah. of his own work and the way that 
understanding better how how court systems in particular operate helps him think through some of the issues that he works on interacting with lawyers in Europe, right? So um, uh, the role of policy actors in shaping social outcomes, that's what he's referring to. So understanding social norms and values that influence the relations among U.S. jurisdictions is an exciting and interesting topic. Yeah. That he finds really useful and helpful and uh, in our discussions. And I think that's wonderful. This was such an awesome email to get. I mean, the, the, you know, they were actually like saying things that are, that are helping people think about things in new ways right. all over the world. Uh, and we can tell from the downloads that, you know, they're just, uh, it, North Dakota aside, we reach <laughs> all parts of the globe right? and, and people seem to enjoy the show. He actually found us, um, I think from Denise Howell's mention on this week in law. Yeah, I, I don't know if it right. was, I don't know if it was the episode we were on or another episode because right. we were on one of those episodes. Yeah. Great, also a great show. But it's, you know, it's really wonderful that, that, um, I think you've said this many times that, that a goal of ours is simply that people who would really enjoy the show find it. Right. Um, because you can't be all things to all people. You can't even be a lot of things to a lot of people. No. Um, you can be a few things to a few people. Right. Honestly. And um, right. because the world has billions of people on it. So right. helping. We want to pe- be a few people's favorite show. Right. Yeah. In part because I I think that's pretty much the most one can be. So um, this is the thing. And, and, you know, you can. Look, if you want to send us scotch like listener Paul, I'm not going to I'm not going to stop you. Yeah, from we're doing not going to turn that no, away. No, or right. or, or a, a wonderful box of goodies like uh, Adam sent from New York. Yeah. Mm. We're not going to we're not going to reject cinnamon rugolo or chocolate bars. No, we're not going to not oh, going to uh, not going to look gift boxes in the mouth. Correct. Um but is that a thing? But yeah, the most important thing that you can do for us is uh you know, tell a couple other people about the show. And and maybe they'll like it, maybe they won't. But um, you know, our our audience grew tremendously in our first year. It's been a little bit flat this year, mm-hmm. but you know, we reach enough people. I think the people yeah. that we reach re- really enjoy it. Um, but it'd be great to grow some more. Yep. Only you know to to reach people who would really enjoy it who don't know. And I would say this, it, so. um, although it's it's less direct. Okay. I would say even if all you do is introduce a few of your friends to podcasts. Like yeah. Maybe you, maybe some of your friends don't know about podcasts. Maybe yeah. they don't know that they could put a a podcast app on their phone and listen to podcasts while they're commuting, while right. they're doing chores at home, while they're. I mean, it's all. Maybe they just don't know about podcasts. Introduce them to them because even if it's not our podcast, there might be a podcast out there that they would so I love have, if I they knew a, about yeah, it. Yeah, I have a more direct suggestion, and then we'll get to our guest. Maybe okay. no, I have one more thing. But uh, <laughs> uh, here, here's a direct suggestion: if your friend puts down his or her phone at the table. Just take the phone. Oh, boy. Okay, take the phone. Um, tweet whatever thing you want to tweet. There's a traditional tweet. For, from their Twitter account. Yeah, from, from phones that have been taken. There's okay. a traditional tweet for that. I'll let you look that up. Um, but uh, go ahead and download. You know, you can be Castro, Instacast, or I use Overcast. Um, I go do ahead too. And download a podcast app and subscribe to, I would say, maybe Radiolab. Um a few other podcasts that you enjoy, certainly Judge John Hodgman. Oh, um, critical. Uh, maybe Dahlia's uh, Amicus. Yep, 99% uh, Invisible. Maybe This Roman Week in Mars. Law. There's so many good ones. Download, but make sure you uh, uh, subscribe to ours as well. Yeah. yeah but I, so I, I do think, you know, even if you don't take that direct measure. So I want to make sure I understand what you're people, suggesting. Yes. You're suggesting that the, that the person commandeer the phone. Yes. Download an app onto that phone. Yes even though it isn't their phone. Yes. And subscribe on that app to podcasts of that person's choosing. 
Exactly. Okay. I just want to I, make I sure I have any, that right. Yeah. I don't see any reason not to do that. Okay. I, no you're reason? Because hel- you're helping someone. You're yeah. helping someone. <laughs> ah, the I was helping defense. Of course. Uh, defense? No. Um, Offense, I would say. <laughs> but yeah. You said you had one other idea before we get to well, our amazing just, guest. I was just going to say. I was Woody Hartog. In all seriousness, the, seriousness to amplify. I mean, I think that, you know. Podcasts are exploding in popularity. People think of, you know, a lot of people hear them. Wasn't that a 2005 thing or 2000 thing? And the truth is we're just now – it's apps that are making it work really well, that are making it work like conveniently like radio and everything. So help people get an app. I mean even if they don't listen to our show, you'll be helping someone. That's a good thing. It's really practical. So one podcast that I would highly recommend that I think people – listeners of this show would enjoy is Philosophy Bites. Yes. Uh, which is a great podcast. And it's a lot different than ours because it's a tightly edited 15-minute yeah. usually uh, thing with really great thinkers. I don't remember the, the name of the first gentleman who does it, but it's uh, with so-and-so and Nigel Warburton. Yes. Um, I love Philosophy Bites. I do. It's so, Philosophy it's, Bites. It's so funny. You feel, and it's one of those Nigel shows Warburton. that makes you feel hmm? smart. It's one of those shows that makes you feel smarter by listening to it, right? Totally. You get new ideas uh, from from really great thinkers. And it's, and it's usually very – you know, it is always very – in fact, I always want more. I, they do our, leave you wanting more. We sh- never leave people no, wanting we more. <laughs> we always leave people wanting less. Yeah. That's that's the philosophy of our show. We're we're like the director's track of our own show, right? You know, it's all one thing, right? Yeah. And, um, uh, but on the latest one, there was it was about um, uh, it it was about uh the death and the and the theory of the self. Like, um, did you did you listen to this one? I did, which is which, which probably is, why is you what inspired my yeah. Buddhist um, dancing to Nick now, on table. Now, at this point, it's a preview. We've already recorded it. Yeah. But later on in the show, you'll hear something referring to Buddhists and and and, uh, and valuations of the future self. Right. Yeah, I wasn't going to give it away. Oh shit. Yeah. Oh, now I have to edit that you out. You got to bleep that. Oh my gosh. Do you want to say anything else that I have to edit out? Maybe just bump your mic a few times and cough. <laughs> Look at him. <laughs> no, you stupid. Oh my god. <laughs> um, well, I, so I was going to say one of the interesting, I think people should just listen to that show, but one of the really interesting they things should. was that in fact, um, you know, they comp- it's, it's a guy who does kind of, uh, um, um, empiricism with respect to, right. uh, this, uh <laughs> exactly. so you test people on how much they value their, how much uh, they have a, con- a notion of a consistent self, how much they think their future self will be the same as their current self and how much they uh, indications that they see that future self as, as being distant from them. In some and how way. it affects various judgments that they make. Some of it could be anxiety about death. Some of it could be concern about doing particular behaviors. So, and, it, and some of the predictions are not, some right. of the, some of the measured values turn out to be quite different from what one would predict. And the hypotheses were things like the, if you have a, a lesser con- conception of the stability of the self, that the future you is, is a stranger to you in some ways, that you will be more generous now. Right, because you will be less concerned with saving for this future person right. who is is, is so, at least somewhat a stranger, and the the evidence seems to bear that out. Right, that the that those two things are kind of correlated. I don't know how strong this is. I'd love right. to talk to this guy. I would too. Oh, it'd be so great. We should get him on the show. Um, ex- and, and so that you know, they studied like Buddhist monks and then um, uh, Christians and and Hindus, right, in the United States. I don't remember. Yeah, uh, uh, and. And it is true that the Buddhists tended tended to have the less stable conception of the self. This conception of the self is ever changing and not related to one's uh, current self. And the generosity and the other measures went along with that, except when it came to death anxiety, right? Right, where the the Buddhists were even more anxious about death than the uh, Christians and the Hindus. I have a lot of questions about this. I have a lot. So of why questions. we need to have this guy? On the yeah, show. exactly. So um, that's the reference that will be uh, to which we will give a post view later in the show.
Okay. What else you got, Joe? Nothing. Other than an awesome guest. Well, let's get on with it. Hello. Woody. Hey, how's it going? Hey, this is this is Christian. Hey, Christian. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm not sure that we've ever talked in person. We have. You actually moderated a panel um, that I presented on at the Georgia Law Review Civil Rights Symposium. Oh, was this the one that I was pulled into at the last minute? Yes. Like three <laughs> seconds in, they were like, hey, you. <laughs> I remember we talked about this. You were like, hey, you, go moderate this panel. <laughs> That's right, because uh, the the person who was supposed to moderate did not show up. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, yeah. We did a good solid there. Yeah, it, it worked out well. It worked yep. out well, if I remember. That's right, you were on that panel. So, but that was a while back. I, I was, I was a little, um, uh, I was a little flustered. Yeah, it's okay. What, uh, what civil right did you talk about, Woody? I talked about privacy, um, uh, and uh, I presented a paper called uh, Chain Link Confidentiality, where I said we, we should think about privacy in terms of, we should explore the, the con- contractual aspect of privacy more and how we can kind of link obligations together through contracts to follow information downstream. Oh. Yeah, it was, it was fun. Um, it was a, it was a really fun thing to do. Although I guess I would nor, I would think of privacy as something m- more in, in REM than. Yeah. And that was a so matter of contract. I'm, I'm, and I was skeptical of a property right to privacy. So my, this was kind of my compromise with that, where, uh, where, where we said, okay, well, if it's, if it's consensual, if you take it on, um, then you can kind of follow it downstream. I mean, it's got its limitations, but. I'm kind of a uh, uh, you know thousand flowers bloom guy when it comes to privacy. Sure, yeah, I mean the difference between in rem and in personam. This is the idea. You know, in rem is. Uh, I just meant. I was just it, trying it, to say good against the world. That yeah, that's what I was trying to. You yeah, don't, don't gonna... want to have to. You don't want to make someone need to know whose other who whose behavior they should be shaping in order to shape it with a contract. Yeah, yeah. I was right. just gonna, I was just going to clarify right that in rem meant. You know, yeah. Sorry that you, was... that you have a good, that you have a cause of action against anybody who violates the terms of the right. Whereas, oh, I see. Right, right. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. That, and, that, and, it, and personum is you know just a, a a contractual right that's good against particular people because of either either you contracted or some other provision of law makes your so called right you know your your right to sue your ability to enforce something right. good against yeah. particular people in particular situations and and these are you know this is. Um, I don't know how much we want to go down this road at all because <laughs> we want to get to Woody's very interesting stuff. But <laughs> but but it is interesting to think about because, you know, I do think about these just as kind of tendencies and descriptions of law rather than um, rather than things which have some kind of reality to them. You know, and I know Henry Smith would like jump all over me for saying that probably. But um, uh, you, and Nathan you, Chapman, too, probably. Yeah, probably. Colleague. I mean, the, and I think for very different reasons. I mean, the. So it, it, this comes down to whether property has any kind of essential reality in the law, right? And whether property is a separate thing in the law rather than what I think of it. I think property is a strategy and technique in the law, um, right. like other kinds of descriptors of things like causation and other, you know, other legal bundles, under, under, other bundles of ideas that we put under one word that oftentimes we don't have to think about except in hard cases. That's right. Yeah, I think that's right. There was a, a do you guys know Josh Fairfield at, at Washington and Lee? Um, he's got a really interesting paper called Bit Property, where he talks about the, the blockchain with Bitcoin and how that might relate to actual property. And that, that really, when you think about it, property is kind of the system of ledgers 
Um, huh. And so he, he kind of thought about, you know, thinking about property in a different way than, than we currently do and how um, how the, the idea of this this blockchain and this kind of centralized database might help us think about property in a different way. It's a really interesting piece. I, I, I'd recommend it. What's yeah. most interesting about it is that was a sentence that started with Bitcoin that I actually kept listening to. <laughs> Which is, which for me is pretty miraculous. Normally, I'm, I'm, my normal policy is as soon as the word Bitcoin is uttered, I, I actively cease to listen. That's right. Uh, that's right. Yeah. yeah among, that's, among other words. Because you're cause. about to hear some kind of crazy anarcho-libertarian rant that's about something. Usually, case. when you hear the word Bitcoin, that's usually what you're about to hear. I supervised a wonderful student paper that used ideas from the Bitcoin blockchain. It's one, look, I'm the first one to say I'm cutting myself off from all sorts of fruitful thinking and inquiry and engagement, and I'm making my life much the poorer right. uh, for being irrationally uh, programmed against hearing uh, Bitcoin utterances. Okay, you see, you were still talking about Bitcoin yeah. with all that. I, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure if this was a more general. <laughs> a more general. Well, if you want to make the more general case, you can. But, uh, oh, but yeah, let's not go down this in rem and personam road because that's well. You know, Woody, I don't. I don't know. Um, uh, I, I can say well. Generally, the the answer to this question, um, I don't uh, of whether you listen to the show is is no. And <laughs> you know, that's the default <laughs> assumption for everybody that I meet. But um, but one of the conceits of the show is that is that you know we don't always go where we think. We don't always go where we think we're going to go, and, and maybe we can get to good ideas that way. And so we, we kind of lay bare, in a I way, the, the, the process of coming up with ideas and, <laughs> and, and, the, and maybe a lot of the times the process of not coming up with ideas. That's okay. <laughs> but at least, at least having fun step. along the way, yeah. Yeah, no, I know. I completely agree. I'm, I'm willing to go anywhere you guys want to go. And, and if, we, if we go to a place more interesting, then that's, we're all the better for it. Well, I, so we, you, know, you sent us um, some things that you're thinking about right now. And I don't see any reason not to talk about those things because I think it's yeah, super, great super interesting. Yeah. And, and so I want to I I kind of tee it up for you um, by, you know, uh, I know what you're saying. So I want to kind of challenge it because the, the, um, the, the, um, I say challenge it, but like set up a kind of fake challenge and then have you tell me why this is, why you're doing something different. But like probably the most, uh, castigated concept in computer security law is security by obscurity, right? That right. I'll just, uh, um, I, I remember, um, uh, working, I was working for a nonprofit in grad school and I was, uh, making their website. Um, and I was trying to make it in a way, this is back in the, in the nineties and, the person before he'd used like Microsoft front page or some stuff. It was totally not maintainable. So I was trying to create like a system for just writing raw HTML that would allow them to update it and put things in various directories. I mean, it was very like, you know, hands on. Um, but, but there was one guy who said, you know, we need, maybe we could have like, uh, you know, we need communication amongst ourselves and we need, we need like a place for the leaders of the organization to kind of log in. So maybe what you could do is make like a very small image in the corner that only the people who uh, only the on, only the people who should know would know that it's there, and if they click on it, then they go to like the secret web page with all the secret goodies in it. Um, <laughs> this was maybe the worst idea for security I'd ever. This is someone who didn't who didn't know that you could actually look at the raw HTML, you know, and you could actually see that pictures in there. And so that was like to me the ultimate example of an attempt, a, a ham-fisted attempt at security by uh, obscurity, but. Um, but you're you're talking about privacy by obscurity in this paper that we're going to link up and, and talk about a little bit more. Um, why is that? A, you know, why is obscurity the right approach with privacy? And maybe you could contrast that and tell us what you don't mean by it and, and why it doesn't have 
uh, and if we want to go further into what security by obscurity means, like why it doesn't have all the vices of security by obscurity, which is like inherently insecure, maybe. But um, right, right. So, so this is a concept that I've been thinking about for a number of years, and I, I started thinking about it with uh, Fred Stutzman, who's an information scientist uh, and, and teaches at, at uh, UNC, and now I've been thinking about it with Evan Selinger, who's a philosophy professor at, at Rochester Institute of Technology, and and we've been thinking about what it means to kind of disclose information. And, and this all started with the problem of the fact that people share information with others all the time. Um, you know, we, we, we are constantly in a state of kind of sharing information and we expect it to be private. And the, the conventional wisdom was that, well, if you share information with people, then it's, it's, it's by definition not private. Um, and, and confidentiality is a really good kind of way to approach that, but not, of course, not everything is confidential and that's a, a relationship based protection. And so we, we started poking around and we, we hit upon this idea of obscurity, which is that almost everything we do in our social lives is, is to some extent unlikely to be seen or heard by most people. So um, this podcast will, will uh, be more public than what I do when I get done with this podcast. Which yeah, is don't of, don't be so sure, Woody. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Hopefully, it's designed say, to be say. less obscure. It's but, designed. Yes, it's yeah. designed not to be obscure. That's right. That's right. Don't say yourself short. I'm, I, I have faith. Right. Um, and and so, but but afterwards, you know, I'll I'll hang up uh, from from this call and, and kind of walk down the hall and maybe get some coffee, of which maybe two or three total people will see me. Now, technically, that's sort of what we traditionally say is public, right? Um, but public is is also an incredibly dubious concept, I think, within the law. And and instead, we kind of live what we we call this zone of obscurity. Um, and it's it's a spectrum, right? It's it's not a, a hard continuum. And what we mean by that is really the the likelihood. So it's it's kind of a percentage based thing. The likelihood of information being seen or understood, um, accessed or understood by people really that you you weren't anticipating or maybe didn't want. Um, and most of our lives are lived in in various zones of obscurity. So if you think about um, the uh, the common assumption within the law, which is that information in public is fair game, um, uh, the way we live our lives, I think, is very different than that. So um, when you walk outside to to your car, um, the the likelihood of of anyone other than maybe your neighbor seeing you is incredibly low, and and that's a a risk calculation that even if we don't um, explicitly. Uh, taken into account, we probably implicitly do every time we walk outside. If we knew that that CNN would be broadcasting our walk from our our home to our car, then we probably would act a little differently. Um, and we do this all the time. And so, so what I'm I'm trying to do, what we're trying to do with this research, is kind of seize upon this concept and the idea of transaction costs. And, and and which kind of affect the likelihood of information being found or understood, and and kind of map that onto our legal regime, which is not really reflective of of what we think our lived reality is. And so and so then that brings us to the point of of your question, which is what's obscurity by design, and what's the difference between obscurity and security. And the differences. First, I'll say the differences. Then I'll talk about how they're similar. The differences are that. Um, with security, you've got kind of a binary, which is you really want to keep people from uh, unauthorized party from accessing unauthorized party from accessing information. 
But with obscurity, sometimes um, you've got uh, you've got this incredible diversity of of how far you want information to go, who you want to see it, um, who is proper to see. And we disclose this information within this kind of crazy web of, of choices. And for the most most kinds of disclosures that we make, most social disclosures that we make, they're not what I call radioactive. Um, you know, we're not disclosing some incredibly sensitive piece of information that if it got out beyond our sort of, you know, closed social network or, or tight-knit social network, then it would be harmful to us. Yet we don't also simultaneously consent to it being kind of broadcast to every single person in the United States simultaneously. And so and so what I've been searching for, what we've been searching for here is this this kind of idea of good enough privacy, right? That in most situations, um, as long as, as the odds are really low that someone will see it, then we're probably okay with that. And how could we, could, how could we design a system that kind of protected us uh, with respect to most people not seeing it? Can, I stop, you, can I stop you there for a sure. second? And, Absolutely. And, um, and, and bring us back to the physical world because sure. uh, in the physical world, maybe we can gain some – um, some intuitions and uh, and and as you point out in the paper, uh, you know the concept of what privacy is is really hard to figure out. I mean, there, there are people like Posner who say that privacy is shouldn't always be protected. It's basically the right to tell lies about yourself sometimes or to, right. to hide useful information. So let's just put all that to one side and pretend that we've got some notion of privacy or we're going to focus on one of the possible conceptions of privacy as as kind of the creepy factor. Right. You know, so. Um, like you say, if I go out, suppose I'm going out to the grocery store and I'm walking into my, you know, getting in the car, getting on my bike and the neighbor sees me, I wave hi. Like they know that piece of information about me. Right. And, right. uh, and if later, uh, you know, I didn't see them, but, but I come back and, and then, and the neighbor says, Hey, I saw you hop on your bike and, and go to the grocery store. It seems like a nice day for a bike ride or something like, I wouldn't say that was creepy. Right. So right. under that conception of privacy so far, so good. Right. I go to the grocery store. I'm walking around. Maybe there's a student in the same grocery store. And, and, and the next day they say, Hey, I saw you in the grocery store the other day. Like, I don't think that's creepy. You know, they, they were there. I was there. Um, I, I go out in public. I expect to be seen. I'm not wearing one of those, uh, ridiculous, like uh, set of glasses and nose, you know what I'm talking about, right? right. The uh, yeah. recognition yeah. thwarting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I'm not wearing one of those. So, um, I wasn't, you know, trying to, stay secret. So I anticipated people might see me. Um, but if the next day I go into school and someone says, boy, that seemed like a nice day for a bike ride. And, and then uh, why did you get all these items at the grocery store? And then, boy, you guys were up late that night. You know, the lights didn't go off until a certain time. Uh, and one person reported all of those things like that would be creepy, right? That's right. Um, even if there are 20 different people, each of whom observed, you know, each of whom observed one of those things. And in total, they observed all of those things. Uh, so this is, you know, I, I know Solov, uh, Daniel Solov has written before about this kind of aggregate, aggregation principle among many other conceptions of privacy that, that one of the things that can be creepy about, unless you forget the digital world, just the physical world, is uh, the way these bits of information about our lives can be put together and held by one entity. And right. typically we're talking about like big advertising firms or middleman, middleman firms that sell to advertisers. And I think for most people like that, um, if they have an intuitive gut reaction against a privacy intrusion, it's against that kind of like, you know, creepy intrusion. Now, there are other examples that he gives and, and that I know that you're familiar with. I mean, even if only one person only knows one piece of information about you, it can be creepy. Like if it's information about when when and how you went to the bathroom, for example, right? He calls that an exposure harm. But uh, so how do we um, – uh, and, and I take it that – one of the things that's obscure in the physical world there is 
people see these individual actions like appearing in the grocery store, getting on your bike, putting a particular item into your cart, but not all the items like those are obscure in your in, in your framework because they're unrelated to other things in context. Whereas if someone has all of that information, suddenly your life is exposed, right? Your the story of your life is no longer obscure because people aren't seeing it in isolation. Um, so let me, yeah, go ahead. Take, take it from there. Right, right. So that's exactly correct. So the idea that, that you can shape a much more nuanced, um, version of, of who you are and, and, and get a much more detailed story of your personal information by aggregating all of this information is exactly, it gets to the heart of what we're talking about. And the reason we don't get upset about that usually is because we set this, we set our expectations around what we think other people, people are typically capable of. Um, and what they will be motivated to do, which is all shaped by transaction costs, right? So uh, it would be overly burdensome for someone to kind of walk behind you um, and, you know, look at all the things that you pick out of the grocery store and then follow you to your car and then follow you to work and follow you to wherever you drive. Um, not only would that be be a high transaction cost and no one's got the, the impetus to do that, but also violate social norms. And so we then form these expectations. And, and what one of the things that we've been writing about is that uh, with technology, it, it dramatically lowers these transaction costs. And that, that sense of creepiness we feel is really, in many cases, a loss of, of obscurity that we had become comfortable with, right? The idea that we operate uh, within these these notions of what people can and will do um, based on collecting a certain long piece of information. And, and when that's taken away from us, it, 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 some people call that a privacy violation, but what we call it is, is, is kind of a loss of obscurity. We think that's a much more accurate way to, to talk about it. So it's a discontinuity. It sounds like you've got, you sort of, you're, you're rolling along in life and there's a set of established practices that, that rely on a set of assumptions about people's typical capacities and the information they get with those capacities. But technological change can come along and really be sort of an exogenous shock to the system where suddenly some or maybe even a lot of people have a very different set of capacities. So, you know, now that now that cameras, for example, are are uh, really good cameras are are pretty much universally available in people's nearly universal mobile telephone technology. Um, having people not just see you, but record what they see of you out in public spaces is now kind of a fact of social life in a way that even five years ago it was, or 10 years ago, certainly it was not. Right. So whatever norms come from, you know, would it be, would it be creepy for the person to come up to you the next day and say, Hey, you know, I saw you at the market. I'm sorry. I didn't get a chance to come over and say, hi, I was in a different part of the store and I, yeah, I was in a hurry. Um, that's one thing. Whereas I think if a person walked up to you and, and their phone and showed their phone to you and was like, yeah, I took this great picture of you at the store yesterday. I'd be like, Oh, okay. That's pretty weird. Right. right? I mean, um, but, but yet it's, right. it's just, it's not even the aggregation point. Right, right. It's, it's just, that's, other just kinds of... that's just one moment at, from one person in one place, but because but now it's the durability. But that's of yeah, the that's, experience that's changed. So it, right, these yeah, different so dimensions can of... be changed in different ways. Yeah, it's it's the it's exactly. that it's unaggregated, but also uh, it's unaggregated, but it's um, you expect your your moments in physical life to be fleeting. Right. We it's rely exactly. on that. I mean, that's one of the downsides of this show right? is that our conversations are, are, are a little bit more indelible than they otherwise might be. But um, but even before and, and Woody, I know you want to jump in here. Let me just cue something else up. Uh, um, even before we get to the technological point, 
although the cameras may be a, a, a bridge to that, even before we get there, um, most of us have these expectations about not being followed and photographed and all of these things, not only because we think, boy, that would just be too expensive for other people to do, but in terms of our models of, of other people's motivations and thinking, and you alluded to this a bit, we just don't expect that people would have that kind of motivation, right? We don't, when we see other people in public, we, and, and we're thinking about the way that their brain is working and we're having a right. model in our head of, of their kind of intentions. We just – that model doesn't include a desire to – unless we have – unless we're paranoid, a desire to kind of keep tabs on us, right? right? But that's not true of everyone. Celebrities have been dealing with this problem for a very long time where people do have that motivation. The celebrity knows that other people have that motivation and where the transaction costs are worth it because they can right. publish the stuff on the Inquirer, et cetera, et cetera. So maybe even before we get to the tech point, um, uh, maybe we can deal you know, with, with that issue and how obscurity has been challenged, uh, has been a challenge for celebrities. And they actually have put on the kind of masks that I talked about earlier to try to disguise themselves. That's right. That's right. And, and because that's a, 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 I've hypothesized and a, a couple of other people have as well that it's, it's a requirement for human flourishing to be able to have some kind of zone of obscurity where you can um, exist outside of places that you know will be highly scrutinized. This is this is kind of Goffin's front stage, backstage idea, right? Which is that most of the time when we're in public, we're kind of performing, we're, we're performative and we play these certain roles. And it's really important to have a place, a sort of backstage, where you can kind of let your hair down. Um, and you're right, celebrities have been dealing with this for for quite some time. Um, and there are several different angles of, and so to go back to, to the previous point really quick, there are several different kind of axes in which obscurity is created. So there's the fixation point, which you brought up, which is most of the time when we're having, we're having conversations, it's not fixated. Um, and, and so we can, it's less likely then to be kind of found or understood in the future. So the likelihood of obscurity increases, um, because it's it's less likely to be discovered later. And then there's the duration element. So how long is something going to last? Um, if someone takes one photo of you out in public, that seems very different than if someone were to kind of assign a drone to you. So if I were to take like a, a Christian jo- drone or a Joe drone, right, and kind of write your name on it and follow you only in public for an entire year, um, it would still be in public, but it would be for the span of a year and reveal all this stuff. So that's kind of the aggregation. We call those Joe drones. We call them Jones. I think. <laughs> right. That's, a, that's trademark. Well, actually, that one's free. Anybody can run with that one. All right. Yeah. Right. Okay. That's right. Yeah. We'll, just, we'll just leave that out there. For yeah. Me. Leave that out there. for. What they cannot do, though, is actually follow me with an effing drone. I will shoot <laughs> that. <laughs> I will shoot that thing out of the sky. Yeah. No, you pay, pay for it. Pay for your Jones and Bitcoin. Right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> It's hitting the market soon. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, and then searchable, right? So searchability is another option, particularly with the web, that makes things instantly easier to find. So it's 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 one thing to have to kind of go digging around and find things yourselves, but then to have them made searchable, where it's really easy to find, that of course raises the likelihood of information of information being found, and then the ability to make sense of things. And so a lot of times, um, particularly, you see this on on social media. Twitter and Facebook, where people will post what they call vague booking, where they'll they'll say, uh, so over, you know, fill in the blank right now, so over this right now, and you have no idea what it is they're talking about, um, unless you have some other piece of information to make sense of that, right? And that's a, that's a sort of a way of obscuring information as well. Uh, Dana Boyd calls this steganography, or hiding in plain sight, 
Um, and, and this is a way to obscure information, but, but the more information becomes available that allows you to make sense of it, the less ob- obscurity you have. And so, so it hits kind of along all these different points. Um, and, and in the real world, you're right. We've been, we've been dealing with this. Celebrities have been dealing with this for a long time, but now it's, it's because when everyone has their 15 minutes of fame, we all have to, to sort of make sense of how we want to deal with, with, this increased exposure and loss of obscurity and whether it's, it's okay. Um, one of the things, and I'll throw this out there as, as something that maybe we can talk about. One of the, the, the things I've been thinking about is, is, is obscurity just fleeting and should we just give it up? Right. Or is it always kind of increasingly being lost with every new technology that comes along? Um, and if it's just a, a temporary state, should we just let it go? And, and a lot of the criticism that I've gotten about this work is that, that it's a nice thing to hold on to now, but eventually everything's going to be available to everyone and we're fighting a losing battle. Well, yeah, that's, that goes in line with like, you know, how, how much, hmm, I mean, we can, maybe we should start to talk about the different kinds of harms that result from the lack of obscurity. But if suddenly like everybody just knew that everybody else, I don't know, picks their nose has, uh, on occasion has, uh, you know, whatever their weird sexual practices are, like everybody's got their weirdnesses and we're just all okay with this. And, and people don't work as much as they claim that they work and they goof off when they claim that they're working. And, right. uh, so if we all knew that we were more slothful, gross and, and, and would and everyone weirder, just be more forgiving? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And less Victorian about, uh, right. Right. Stuff. Yeah. Maybe, less maybe Victorian not. in terms of, you know, we literally wear masks, you know, there, when we go out and, you know, in terms of suits or, you know, we don't right. wear powdered wigs anymore, right. but like the, we, we definitely, you maybe, know, maybe they would, but maybe they wouldn't. Yeah. We well, don't actually know. Yeah. Would, would people be shamed because their particular grossness was different than the normative grossness or, you know what I mean? I, I don't know. Right. Yeah. Well, so this is, this is, there's a really interesting book called the transparent society written by David Brin. Um, where he kind of proposes this thought experiment, like what if everybody knew everything about everybody? And Can I ask to, you, when was this book written? This was, book was written, I, I believe, in the, the late 90s. I've got it right here, so I can actually... Oh, okay, yeah. Um, I have a folder on my hard drive called X-Ray Society that I was thinking of working on one time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, it, would be, it, would be, it would be, yeah, helpful to know that it was written before I even started that project, so I that's don't feel right. bad so, about it, yeah. That's right, that's right. So you can feel really bad about it now. It's, it's, it's 1998 was within the copyright uh, yeah, yeah. copy that I've got has. And, and he proposes this really incredible thought experiment where he says, what if everybody knew everybody about everything? And, and it gets to what you were saying, which is, will we, will the, the truth will be laid bare. And the fact that we're all human will come to light and we won't judge each other because of our weird, um, you know, quirks or nose picking or or kind of uh, sexual preferences or or things like that, because because we'll know that we're all in the same boat together. And that's I think that's initially an appealing concept, though. The more I've thought about it, the more I think that that's that's not how it would play out, because it sort of assumes away the existence of power structures. Right. Um, and and the fact that that even uh, even uh, even if there is mutual transparency, it also doesn't take into kind of cognitive limitations, right? Even if we could know everything about everybody, that doesn't mean that we're actually going to take the time to look up and find out everything about everybody. And we also know that we're pretty selective about things that we pay attention to and things that we don't. Um, and so it would be very easy to have information. You know, we, we have the, the sum of mankind's knowledge is 
in everyone's pocket in their smartphones and we use it to look up pictures of cats. And so <laughs> I don't see I don't see that you know increased transparency kind of playing out in this sort of utopian way simply because I'm guessing that because of uh, the way in which we tend to use information now is we'll use it selectively. But we'd be, we'd be different people too, right? Uh, you know, this is some of, I think it was Cass Sunstein's uh, like work in the nineties on, on juries, but also I think this is in Republic.com, the, the book uh, work on like internet communities, right? How just finding a community can make you you know, you, you, you will accentuate the behaviors which are valued in that community. Right. And, and you know, and the, the example with juries is right. They make, they, they tend to make each other, they, the people on the jury tend to make one another more extreme in their views. If they had a mild preference to begin with, like once it's clear, that's the group's preference, then people start to get more extreme in that preference. And, and so these online communities may be weird, right. And you may have a mild preference for them, but like you change when you're exposed to it. Right. Well, in part, uh, cause so. you now know that you don't have an idiot. You now know that your preference isn't entirely idiosyncratic. Right. I mean, you know that it's shared. So it's right. ju- just the difference from being feeling like you might be alone in something to feeling like you might actually have a community that right. could be built around that thing. Um, yeah, that, that's probably a pretty dramatic change. Although it sounds too, Woody, that what what you what the point you just made about our cognitive uh, capacity limitation is in that sense obscurity is ineradicable i mean to to for people to say obscurity will eventually disappear not really uh, because human attention will never become infinite that's right that's exactly right and that's well said and that's that's a much better way of describing it than i've been trying to to grasp for that's exactly right i mean we still have to enter the word into the um, the search engine, right? And we still have to think to do that. And and so it's not like we're going to have this sort of matrix-like chip implanted in our brain where we have omniscience about every single person in the world. We still have to search out and find it. Um, and, and that could actually lead to, to sort of this negative reality where everyone wants to be as boring as possible to avoid <laughs> being looked up, right? Yeah, so, yeah. so because you don't want to draw attention, just keep your head down, don't draw attention, then no one will enter your name into this, you know, database and find all the things. Yeah, until the moment when the president nominates you to be on the Supreme Court. Right. And this is the you'd be the perfect I, nominee. <laughs> right. Yeah. So this is this is a great this is a great thought experiment that someone proposed, which is that in 40 years, um, will anyone will will anyone be able to run for office uh, with a clean slate? Because we, you know, all, everything that we've done, even stupid kid mistakes will will come back to haunt us um, because it will all be preserved whereas in the past you could do all kind, you know any manner of things and and if it were thrown back in your face um in the very least you didn't have video evidence of it um where you could you know it wasn't so visceral where like oh this person partied hard in college and you could say well maybe i did but but um you know that wasn't being kind of replayed on youtube every single day every time something was yeah but woody do you think we're in this like weird space right now like an in-between stage where um, where that kind of like, I was always good. I never did anything weird. I've got no weird fetishes. I'm not a weird person. I'm a normal person. And, uh, I, I put on a suit the minute I wake up in the morning. <laughs> right. And, uh, it, 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 people can do that now. Um, whereas in the future, like, wouldn't you be considered a weirdo if you didn't have some of these like if you didn't have naked pictures of yourself somewhere on the internet or you didn't have this, you know what I mean? You, you, your right. eyes got wide, either, Joe. Either, right. either a weirdo or the most like sterile human ever, right? Which like is who the- wants that kind of person running anything? Yeah, but this can shift. I mean, I think you, another another reason why I think it's naive to think that um, 
the norm will simply reset so that we're we're all less we're all less Victorian because everyone has these blemishes that are completely public and therefore why be worried about them? Um, the, I think another reason that's naive is is the sort of uh, Freud's um, narcissism of small differences, uh, and this is the the point that Woody made about power um, is there will always be in groups and out groups, right? And I, all of this, whatever it is, however whatever is exposed whether it's a lot of things exposed or only a few things exposed, but whatever is exposed is grist for the mill uh, when it comes to accentuating small differences because doing so helps you play power politics uh, right. broadly you, you understood. You don't think they were getting better? I mean, I, I, I maybe I'm, optim- I'm optimistic when I look at like the younger generation. When I look at my son's generation, my daughter's generation, there's just a lot of stuff like – I know there's still shaming on the internet. It's a big problem and, 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 and maybe it's not getting any better. But the number of things that, that people, you know, it's not just coming out as gay or, or what, but it's the number of things people share. And then if someone teases and then the kids will call them out as, you know, that that's not cool. Like, I, I don't remember as much of, of that kind of, you know, of other kids saying that's, you know, that's not cool to, to insult for that reason when I was a kid. You know, I, I, it, yeah, it seems like I, things are less normative and maybe because of the proliferation of online communities where people are just more accepting. I don't know if that's a general social trend. Maybe that's a question for a sociologist, but maybe you've seen some of that, Woody. I don't know. Well, and I, I mean, that's something that I certainly would like to see. Um, and, and, that, and if it happens, then I think that that would be helpful. Though I wonder if, if a lot of that has to do with the fact that, that – that's just kind of one context. It's it's the younger generation, but a lot of it's because they're young and they haven't get, gotten into the role where they, into a situation where they have to play lots of these different roles. I mean, I think one of the real problems that we're seeing with the ability to you know pick up on these sort of minor foibles and use them against you is that it wasn't a foible in the context in which you originally did it, but but it, it assumes this sort of singular uh, conception of identity. And I think that a lot of sociology has sort of disproved that, which is that there's no there's no one true person. This is the problem with Facebook's real name feature, right, which is that it sort of assumes that we're one identity and that that can be kind of collapsed. But but this is Goffman. Goffman says we play lots of different identities to lots of different people. Um, I'm someone different to my children than I am to my dean, than I am to my mom, than I am to, you know, my professional colleagues. And, and the idea that, that we should be forced to kind of act the same um, throughout, I think, is is really problematic. And we get context collapse. So when you run for office, when you apply for a job, um, uh, it used to be that you were able to kind of craft this certain particular identity for this particular context um, and now that's getting significantly harder to do because things from other contexts and other identities can be kind of swept in. Um, and it might what was acceptable in that particular context might not be acceptable now be- because the borders are more porous. I mean, whereas right. you, you might have shown one side of yourself at like a, a poker game. Now that poker game is happening on Facebook. And but exactly. you're also friends with professional colleagues and with and with uh, and and. And you think that's a, or, or the writers you cite think that's a bad thing? Well, right, because it's it kind of hinders our ability to to explore who we are and to play different roles and to gain different things from those different roles, um, rather than be, you know, I am Woodrow Hartzog. Here are the set of attributes that I have as a singular person. Um, I think that it's it's. I think that puts a lot of pressure on us. I think that that the way that we tend to live our lives is we we we're, is 
is this idea of performing. Um, and, and that's harder. Um, it, and, I, it, and it would be, it'd be, be sad to lose, lose the, that, that kind of open textured and free exploration, uh, aspect of this stuff. I think it's not sad to lose, um, exposing strategic hypocrisy. That's uh, right. So I think the fact that you, the fact that you've got people making YouTube clips with their phone of a politician who's speaking in front of wealthy donors who says one thing and then in an interview on TV says something else um, that and then those things can be juxtaposed. I actually think that's a good uh, way to try to say, wait a minute, we need a little more uniformity here in the way that you're approaching this issue. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And that's the tension that we have, which is. Uh, and this is the Posner argument, right? That, I mean, that, that, that privacy is good for just kind of hiding, um, discrediting facts about yourself. Um, and, and I completely agree. I mean, we've seen this over and over where if there hadn't been a video available, um, then, then lots of things, uh, injustice would have been allowed to continue, um, where because it was exposed, it, it wasn't. Um, but how do we balance that then with, say, a, a teenager's, desire to be able to engage in, in interesting ideas without worrying about the fact that it might come around to haunt them later. So this is uh, Neil Richards's idea of intellectual privacy, which is if we care about speech and we should care about having something interesting to say and the way that we develop interesting things to say and the way that we develop who we are as a person is to have the freedom to engage in intellectual inquiry without worrying about it coming back to haunt us later. And this is actually some of the reason that I got interested in privacy in the first place, because uh, when I think about the things that, that, that I previously, these previously held beliefs that I had when I was younger, um, that I certainly don't have now, um, I'm, I don't know how that would be used against me now if it were, if it were made public. Um, and do we want do we want people as they sort of form who they are and, and explore that? Do we want them thinking in the back of their mind, how is this going to come back to haunt me? Yeah, it's the, the freedom to say dumb things. You know, right. I, I, you know, it's what we all try to, I'm sure we try to, you know, foster this in our classrooms, especially in law school, where right. you only learn by like venturing ideas. So like, yeah. you know, feel oh, free absolutely. to say dumb things. I say dumb things all the time. And that's the premise of the show right? right. <laughs> is that we get on here and we say lots of dumb stuff and hopefully we say some good stuff too, you know, in, in, in the course of it. And, but I, I think that, um, so, so should we, hmm, uh, you know, so, so some kid goes through is, is maybe typical of a lot of kids. They go to college, they read their first, uh, or in high school, read their first Ayn Rand novel and become some kind of Randian libertarian and they spout off all kinds of things about how you know moochers and leechers and everything and then they grow up and they start to meet other people (laughs) who have different backgrounds (laughs) and you know and 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 they realize that life is really hard in some ways and that people are doing the best they can that we're all these you know complicated uh you know um uh, bags of organic material who are just trying to get through things as best we can and we have complicated thoughts and different things and and they change their attitudes right that's right and 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 but is the way to to keep uh, to to keep um, the potential for f- kind of future intellectual growth and, and welcoming into the community is it to kind of wall off and obscure and we'll get into I, w- I really do want to get into your like your proposals for obscurity your, uh, um, here but uh, but is the is the very goal here to obscure those earlier parts of our lives or is it better and this is just a 
version of what we were just talking about, um, is it better just to recognize that we are all complicated dummies, you know, who say dumb things all the time and that's how we grow. And, uh, and wouldn't it be weird to have a kid who's always thought the same things about the capital gains tax <laughs> from you're age 15 it, to you're 45? You're posing it as either or. Maybe it's, maybe it's not either or. Maybe it's it, the second insight is precisely what makes us willing to do the first thing, right? It's precisely because we understand the way in which we're all imperfect that we can appreciate the value in allowing people, empowering them to obscure things about themselves, that that's not always an illicit thing. If everybody's obscuring, then, then we lose the, we lose the felt emotional impact of the second thing, you know, so the idea that we are all dummies and we all do dumb things, like, you know, we're very quick to discount, we're very quick to discount our own dumb things. This is a fundamental attribution error. Like the reason I said these stupid things about welfare was because I was not dispositional, right. You know, and this wasn't me. I wasn't, Reverse. I wasn't a Randy and I was dumb about other things, but you know, but uh, lots of people are. So, you, right. and I'm not saying all Randians are dumb. So, Please let's keep hear, listening let's to hear, the show. Let's hear Woody's <laughs> ideas. But <laughs> let's hear Woody's ideas. This is the hard thing. So, this is you've hit upon how do we 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 balance this? I think that one of the the, the things that we lose sight of sometimes when we have these conversations is that it's it's publicity, like sharing things and letting people know that other people, you know, make dumb mistakes too, um, isn't this binary. We sometimes share things within small groups, but it's, you know, remains obscure to a larger group, right? And that's really the thing where I think we get a lot of, of, of mileage out of, which is that um, we can we can recognize within a small community that, oh, other people also kind of feel this way or, or maybe someone else kind of struggled with this. Um, the, the hard part is, is trying to figure out at what points are we no longer justified in that um, and what rules do we, do we make on it? This is, this is so – this will – I'll go ahead and lead into uh, some of my answers with this. The answer that I've had, and this is where I'll bring it back to data security – um, is we should design systems that foster obscurity, but we shouldn't have some kind of absolute rights to have information obscured because then we start really um, running into some problems where we start telling people, oh, well, you, you, know, you have this right to, ha- to keep things hidden. Um, and, and that's what data security is. So data security is about uh, building walls and then sort of letting it go. Right. So so the policy of data security in the United States is about raising transaction costs to getting information. I once talked to uh, a a data security professional who said, my job is to build a high enough wall that other people uh, go look elsewhere. Right. And and that we should engineer systems so that it's likely that most people want to get in because there's no such thing as perfect data security, nor should there really be anything such as, as perfect obscurity. Rather, maybe we design systems that foster obscurity, that make people safe, feel safe to disclose information so that we, we head off the, the potential chilling effects of walking into something that you think is going to be a buzzsaw. So just, just, just one concrete example on this uh, is uh, that you mentioned in the paper is suppose I want to write a blog. It's a little bit goofy. Uh, and I, you know, I, I want to write cause I'm happy to talk to my community. I don't want it there forever. And so I include this robots.txt file on my web ser- on, on, in my, uh, 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 directory. Um, and then Google and other major search engines and most minor search engines do not search it cause they respect the settings in that robots.txt file. And so what I write on that blog won't appear in a Google search. That doesn't make it impossible for other people to access. That's and correct. there may be malevolent search engines that, 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 
actually look for look for those settings and only index the places where you tell it not to because that would be um but but it certainly makes it so that a casual person who's just investing mildly and finding out about me is just not going to run across that block so that's example that's a concrete example i think of of raising the transaction cost of finding out about me right that's exactly right and another example that i'll use for my own personal life are are privacy settings and social media which i think are 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 actually misnamed. I think that the better name is obscurity settings. Um, so Facebook's uh, ability, you know, gives you the ability to to have only friends view your profile. Or the thing that I get never-ending grief about is the fact that I have a protected Twitter account. Um, and I encourage everyone to follow me. I'm, I'm I I I like the protected Twitter accounts um, because. For, I like to be a little informal when I engage with people online. I use Twitter sort of conversationally, um, and I don't want it to be this sort of uh, permanently um, uh, recorded record of informal conversations that I've had with people. So I, I protect my Twitter account, and everyone gives me a hard time because apparently I'm the only person who protects my Twitter account. Um, but it keeps it from being indexed by Google, right? And when Twitter turned over every single tweet to the Library of Congress, and presumably it could be made searchable at that point, um, they didn't turn over the protected accounts. And so this is a really good... Now, will I be angry if someone retweets one of the things that I tweet to someone else within my protected account? Absolutely not, right? And and I appreciate people that, that write and say, can I retweet this thing that you just tweeted because you have a protected account? You can, you can tweet away. Um, but for the most part, I feel relatively safe being informal, on Twitter because of that protected account. And so that's another kind of concrete example where you design a system that encourages people to disclose more um, and, and you provide a certain degree of obscurity rather than this sort of absolute lockdown protection. Matt, but I, I see this is where, hmm, I don't know that this is maybe my thought about protected accounts. Um, most of my students who are on Twitter, I think have protected accounts and they, they do it for some of the reasons we've been talking about earlier about preserving opportunities in the future right. while maintaining the ability to say dumb stuff today. Right. Um, right. Uh, I, I don't know. Protected accounts. Uh, so I'm not, does every platform need that kind of obscure? And I, I say this because I feel like protected accounts work against what makes Twitter great. Right. right. And that's with, the criticism I get. Right. Which yeah. Is you participate in the timeline that it's not easy to retweet me that, that, you know, I, that, People would basically kind of shake their fist at me about the protected can, account thing. Can I ask Christian? You you just asked. Um, does every does every platform need to have that? Did I hear you right? That that kind of obscurity. Function. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, given that the answer to that question seems to me to be so painfully obviously no, and I know that you are not a a sort of like near developmentally disabled stupidity person. I'm, I'm glad you're acknowledging that right um, now. <laughs> so what would motivate you to ask that? Like, of course the answer is no, not everything needs to have that. Um, some do, some don't. That's a good thing in that people have right. choices about what they want to use and what kind of communities they want to participate in. So I actually in. don't know when... So what were you really okay. asking? You can't possibly have been asking No, I was question. asking something similar to that. And maybe, you know, this is uh, this is why we call the show Oral Argument, because I say things that Joe thinks are incredibly <laughs> stupid, and, and, that, and that, that makes for good radio. Uh, no, um, Joe, it, it, you no points. So, so... <laughs> So, twi- so, and you see this too. You see, you see this working the other way with anonymous uh, or with uh, pseudonymous, 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 pseudonymous. No, it's not pseudonymous, is it? 
I think it is pseudonymous, right? Because well, you use a pseudonym, so it's anonymous, so it would be pseudonymous. Yeah, that's a word that ought to be just written and not pronounced. But um, <laughs> uh, uh, pseudonymity uh, is a very big deal in the you know in yeah the well I mean circles. So Google Plus adopts that after. So my point here is that um, uh, Twitter, Google Plus, as it originally was, and Facebook have very different architectures in terms of the way people are socially connected and they do different things, yes. right? And uh, each is trying to compete with the other to have a bigger social graph and, a, and more information about its uh, their users, et cetera. And so it seems to me that the protected account in Twitter, and maybe they had protect, protected accounts early on. I, I was, when did you sign up for Twitter, Joe? Well, not too long after it started, long time ago. Yeah, mine was. I, I if I just gone a few months earlier, I'd have a very, very low sign up number. But I, I, I think mine was like fall two thousand seven. is when I signed up, okay. and um, and I don't know that they had them then because I, I didn't sign right. up at the stage where it was still SMS based, um, where Twitter was basically a texting service. But uh, but not not too long after that, I think. And the architecture of Twitter is that you don't think about this stuff. Everything is public. It's very very simple. You follow. You unfollow. Um, and you know, it, things are kind of by design appear fleeting. And obviously yeah. what Woody objects to is that, it, you know, it, even the name Twitter, right. It has this kind of element of, of whimsy and inconsequential, like, right. you know, to it. And right. it's like fleetingness to it. In fact, you know, it's being archived and then maybe it's, it's not so inconsequential or it's not so fleeting. Um, but the protected account may be a concession to people who wanted a different kind of architecture. Right. And, right. and the question is with each kind of new social platform where people communicate, Will that same kind of concession be demanded and then given in order to grow the platform, right? And so what I'm saying is that there's a, there's a, there's a use to Facebook having a different kind of social graph and collection than, say, Twitter, right? I, Twitter is great for some things and not as good at – like if I'm going to talk about like, I don't know, a, a kid's illness, one of my children's illness, I'm not as likely to tweet about that. But I might Facebook it because it's a great way to tell family and friends about something that they may care about that the rest right. of the world would not care about. Or right? if it's for one person, it might just be a text message from you to that person. And, and so, yeah, there's this – I mean, I guess for me, the one thing that I know is bad is if everything were forced into the same set of choices. Right. 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 And that's, so that, that was, that's where my question comes from. Like, so is obscurity a principle that will find a similar expression, you know, uh, not the same expression, but a similar expression because it's a similar idea behind wanting obscurity wherever we appear online? Yes. Uh, Go ahead, Woody. Yeah. Take it away. So I think the answer to that is actually yes, but you'll see it manifested in lots of different ways. And you you, you see it. So privacy settings or, or obscurity settings are not really the only way we can do that. So let's take Yik Yak, for example. Um, do you just, do you guys know Yik Yak? It's a it's a anonymous it's anonymous kind of message posting app that's that's popular in schools right now. And it um, it's the, the, the transaction cost to entry is very low. You know, you you open it up and you can just post away. It's 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 done largely anonymous or I think all anonymous. Um, and it became a, a, a real problem at first because. Um, as we know, opportunities for anonymity mean, you know, lowers penalties for speech. And when you have lower penalties for speech, sometimes speech gets nasty. And um, and so Yik Yak is sort of this, this good and bad architecture because it, it fosters this sort of cesspool hate mentality, <laughs> vitriol. But um, one of the things that's sort of been overlooked in, in a lot of the stories about how harmful Yik Yak can be is that they've also implemented a number of different um, 
technological features that I think are obscurity related that are really interesting. Um, one of them is what is they've implemented geolocation dead zones. So Yikyak is in, only works when you uh, with the geo enabled uh, geolocation enabled devices because it it gives you all the message posts within a, I think a one point five mile radius. And and so with that, they have the ability to basically block off schools. Yikyak became a real problem in classrooms where you know people were kind of basically um, turning into an online mob in the middle of a of a lecture. And and so Yikyak will work with schools and facilitate these dead zones where you, it doesn't even pop up. And so that's a sort of um, obscuring function for a lot of this information, which is you can't access it in a certain place. When information becomes hard to find, it's to access, it's it's obscure. And then the other thing that it does um, is it has filters for full names. So it tries to, if you attempt to post someone's full name, it will only post a first or last name. And and I think that's a really interesting filter because that really is is it's obscuring. It's not making things impossible to find and understand. It's just making it less likely that you know it's reducing the number of people that that will understand it. Um, and then it's got downvoting, where if you don't like a message, if five people vote you know down on a message, then it goes away. It just gets kind of obliterated. And and so these are ways to kind of counteract that. And I think that what you're seeing there um, is what you're seeing. With Twitter's protected account feature or Facebook's privacy setting options, which is that people will demand having something less than complete publicity for a lot of social interaction. So, so this raises the question whether whether the market on its own will deliver the right level of obscurity and make people feel comfortable and, res- and will respond to that. And that runs up against two uh, – I can immediately think of kind of two possible objections, right? One is that um, – the business models of many of these services are themselves obscure, right? And right. and so if it's not clear what you're buying and and how um and how the business stays in business, then their incentives may not be to be completely candid with you about the level of care they're taking with obscurity. And they, you know, so in other words, the, you know, if you're not the buyer, uh, well, the market is going to serve the needs of the buyers. And, right. um, and so who's so, giving what, who's getting what? Yeah. So if it's a middleman advertiser, who's buying it. And then of course their customers or advertisers themselves, you know, it can right. be complicated, right? So, you know, it's a standard story where if you're not the, if you're not paying money, then you're probably the product and not the, not the customer. <laughs> right. Um, and, and the other is, so that's one source of, of, of skepticism about the ability of these services to deliver the optimal level of of obscurity um, and and to some some conceptions of privacy. The the other that I can think of is that that just the nature of digital tools um, and uh, and and computation is that it's hard to know now how the participation in these services will be exploited in the future. Right. Um, you know, maybe you can, you know, you know, maybe with a service like Snapchat or Yik Yak, you can they can tell you, here's what we're going to purge our hard drives you know, our servers every so often. And so you, you kind of know the fleetingness of these things, at least from their end. But who's to say that, a, you know, there won't be some kind of man in the middle app that can archive these things that someone deploys or, you know, it's hard to predict the motivations of other people to make use of those stores of data and what the transaction costs will be in the future as new tools develop, you know, because once a tool is developed, it becomes almost costless to uh, deploy. So 
I don't, do you have thoughts about those two challenges to kind of the free market version of this, the happy story? Right, I do. And, and this, is, this is sort of the current project that I'm working on, which is, is whether the design of technologies um, should be left to the market or whether the law should actually start to care about the design of information technologies with respect to privacy. And, and, um, and the, the, the thesis that I'm kind of coming upon is that, that the design of technologies actually might be the key um, to to regulating and protecting privacy moving forward because we've, we've sort of over leveraged the fair information practice principles in a lot of different ways. Um, and and I'm glad you brought up Snapchat because Snapchat is a really good um, example of someone that, that uses design to a sort of obscuring type of design to entice people. And so I think the things you have to look at with respect to, to design, design should be People should be free to design technologies however they want, except to the extent where they deceive people or, or perhaps unfairly manipulate people. Um, and deception is a big one where people relied upon a feature, a, a design feature, which is to say information would would disappear. Right. And then they, this was also combined with sort of marketing statements where Snapchat promised that these photos would disappear. And in fact, they didn't disappear um, either because they stayed on your phone, which which turned out to be true. Um, or because it was sort of trivially easy to take a snapshot of someone else's snap. Um, and so our expectations about a certain kind of obscurity, which is ephemerality, were, were thwarted. Um, and so, so maybe it's not the case where we say you have to design a technology in this way, but, but maybe there should be, maybe the law should step in and say what you can't do is design certain technologies that make people vulnerable in, in other ways. At least if you're going to, to lure them in with a certain kinds of promise, then you at least have to deliver um, with your technology on uh, wh- whatever your design actually ends up promising. How do we, hmm, I mean, how do we do that? I, I, well, you know, I, mean, I think of, yeah, you can do it several different ways, right? So, so one is the FTC can do it through its authority uh, under uh, Section 5 to unfair uh, to police unfair and deceptive trade practices. Indeed, they've already done this, right? So um, we already have a few complaints that deal with um, technologies that are deceptive, that, that trick users, like spyware is a, is a really good example. Um, you can't deploy spyware. You can't build a, a surveillance technology designed to suck out all this information um, and be completely surreptitious about it. And the FTC has been relatively clear about that. Um, there was a really interesting um, case where someone designed a fake Windows registration page that sort of sucked out all this personal information from you under the guise that you were registering some copy of Windows and it was just a piece of spyware. Um, and the FTC brought a complaint said that was, that was uh, unfair and deceptive. And so that's one way to do it. You could do it with best industry practices. Um, uh, you could... Um, look at, at statements and just make sure that any representations made not just in marketing materials and privacy policies, but really implicitly made by the design itself lives up to the promise. Because if you think about it, design itself shapes user expectations based on the constraints that you have, the way that things look. Um, and that really is probably shapes consumer expectations much more so than what we traditionally use to say, to, to police companies, which is the privacy policy. And yeah, but you, so- you see, my, my, I mean, my concern is that is that yeah, desi- design um, uh, drives a lot of, but business business models drive design 
right? And right. you know, I think everybody knows that Google's an advertising company, uh, right. <laughs> and that and that they're you know that Google's reading all of your Gmail. I mean, n- not employees themselves; they may have internal protections against this, but like you know, algorithmically, this is being sorted and and you know, a, a dossier of of you, um, right. even if it's de-identified in particular ways, is is being is being constructed. Um. I, I get, you know, there's almost the, the low hanging fruit is to go after bad guys, like people who lie to you about what they're collecting. You know, they right. either present a fake page or whatever. Like to me, that's low hanging fruit and kind of the traditional anti-deception rules in, in that we use in markets generally could probably work there. We have increased maybe detection problems because of, uh, because of computers that we didn't have before with that. Um, but, and, uh, but, but at least conceptually, like we know how to deal with it. Right. Right. But dealing, you know, how we deal with business models, which are inherently obscure or which are made obscure, but are not deceptive, where people maybe, you know, a lot of people, I've got a Gmail account, you know, we've got oral argument podcast at gmail.com, right? Sure. Um, it, they're free email accounts. They, uh, a lot of storage. Um, they're, they're, a lot of people like the web interface to access that. Uh, and, and most people know that there is a, a trade-off in terms of privacy in exchange for that thing. Because again, you were basically Google is selling you to advertisers or to middlemen who sell you to advertisers. And, and that's how they make their money. Most people are okay with that. But right. the, the, the normative question is like, what does it mean for people to be okay with that? When are we satisfied that people are okay with that? And if we want something like Gmail for free, um, there's going to have to be that kind of thing. Go ahead. So Joe, let me yeah. sharpen the question yeah. a little bit by, <laughs> by, by, by asking, like, is there, um, is there a reason to think that when individuals are, this is sort of a market failure story question, right, right? right? Like, is there a reason to think that when individuals are making the choice about whether Gmail makes sense for them personally, that each of those personal decisions, when you aggregate them, will create a negative effect that we kind of lost track of by letting people do it individually. Oh, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's right. It goes beyond their bounded rationality and a, an ability to perceive the, the downstream effects of giving up that privacy. Cause, right? Cause of course that yeah. could be an issue, yeah. right? But that's one issue. But another issue would be, even if they were all perfectly unboundedly, but perfectly rational, there could still be you know, because it's done individual by individual, there's uh, some other effect that isn't taken into account. Now, sometimes those effects are positive, sometimes they're negative. So we might say, ah, well, p- you know, if we leave this to private decision making, um, less of it will happen than we want because people can't price in all the benefit that it offers, right? We're, and here we might say, well, more of it will happen than we want because they're not tracking all the negative comes about as a consequence right so is there anything like that happening here in terms of this obscurity question and people's taste for obscurity such that simply letting different market providers make decisions about different things they could offer isn't going to quite get us all that we want yeah i think that's right i think a lot of this comes down to whether you think that that the harm you know the the sort of harm points should be drawn at collection. This, this gets at, at this debate between collection and use, 
right? Which is that there are some people that argue that, that, that most information collection is not the thing that's actually harmful, that it's, the, that it's certain kinds of uses of information. And so that we shouldn't be worried about the fact that people are disclosing all this information or that Google can get all of this information. We should be much more concerned about regulating what people can do with that information. Um, and then there are other people that say, well, um, that's ridiculous that we should care very much about the collection of information because that's... Yeah, I'm one of those people. I was right. about to say, it sounds like nonsense to me. Right, right. Because yeah. right, right. that's like, yeah, I mean, A, that there are inherent arms from collection. B, that, that this is the choke point, right? That, that right. it's almost impossible to regulate downstream, but if we can regulate collection, then, then we've got some... Yeah, why do we care about people acquiring nuclear weapons for their personal Yeah, it's only display. using it's them. Only, right. yeah, so long as right. you don't launch them, it's totally fine. <laughs> Right. Um, And so I do think and so if I'm hearing you, so it's the question sort of, is there a a death from a thousand cuts problem that we get when we have these individualized choices that make sense? Like, okay, I want a free email. So, um, you know, here's I'm going to sign up for Google and I I understand that there'll be a sort of um, harm that comes from that. And then we see it kind of we don't see the harm until it's manifested much further downstream, maybe in the form of something like data brokers. Right. Or the fact that Google gets, um, you know, so kind of too big to fail, sort of, with the amount of information that they have, it's like that. That it's it's um, it presents all sorts of of new problems. Um, and I think I think maybe, um, but I think that that the problem is almost too big to kind of get your head around um, with respect to whether we should be regulating the design of Gmail, right? So is the answer then to say you can't design Gmail to collect information. Um, and in a way, that's difficult because that's basically how Gmail works. That's how the Internet works, right, is that it, 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 you have to disclose a certain amount of information to get a certain kind of utility. Right. Um, and so I don't know. Um, well, you know, a standard response would be, uh, you know, that you that you hear a lot is uh, there should just be a very clear privacy policy that they should disclose in plain language. And you mentioned this a little bit in, in the paper. Um, and I guess uh, uh, Ryan Kahlo has the visceral disclosures right. that you mentioned as well. Uh, former guest, uh, friend of the show. Absolutely. Uh, but I uh, so it would be, you know, here's in plain language. Here's what we're going to do with the information. And maybe even a more aggressive version of that would be that every downstream recipient of that information also has to disclose. So in one disclosure, you see from kind of cradle to grave what could possibly happen with your information. I just, I'm skeptical because um, as you know, as I tell my students in, in legislation regulation, um, nobody reads any contracts ever. That's right. <laughs> as, <laughs> ever. Nor should they, right? right. So, I mean, like, of course I, not. It's not I, rational it's, to. It's, to me, it's ridiculous to even assert that people should be reading a lot of this boilerplate. Um, you know, Snapchat did this when they, when they, the, there was the, the snapping, and it turns out that it, it, the most likely culprit were, was third party uh, apps that you could use to log in with your Snapchat account. And, um, they saved all these snaps and, and Snapchat sort of threw their users under the bus and said, well, we told you not to use third party apps. Well, you told them in the terms of use that nobody should ever be expected to read. Um, so so Christian, I completely agree with you. I think that that um, any regime based upon forcing consumers to read boilerplate is destined to fail. Yeah, and so I, we, but <clears throat> wait a minute. We've created a real paradox here, I think, because we're uh, on the one hand, we're saying, you know, you want you want to give consumers choices, 
Right. But one of the ways those choices are, are, are negotiated and mediated is through disclosures. But, but yes, that's but right. Then, but consumers don't read those disclosures. So, right. So, so we're getting, <laughs> so I think the disclosures happen. Well, then it, then it makes no sense to posit that that's a way to effectively cope with the issue. I agree. I agree. I, 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 I don't. Um, so I don't accept. So for me, what that well, means is, right, I, but, but you see, here we're pos- okay. So so let's not posit <laughs> an either or because disclosures can be very effective. You just have to prioritize them, right? So we know that disclosures can be effective in limited ways, and and they can do things like create skepticism. They just can't inform, right? So you don't want to ask them to do too much. So um, and so. Neil Richards and I are working on a paper right now. Uh, Neil Richards is a professor at, at Washington University School of Law called A Theory of Privacy and Trust, where we say notice and choice has been stretched beyond you know, all rational limits. The idea that, that everything is fine as long as you give consumers notice and give them a choice. So has our kind of um, never-ending quest for harm, privacy harm. Articulate what a privacy harm is. Is it collection? Is it creepiness? Is it, is it whatever? Um, and that really... Legal regimes should be putting the the burden on the company that's collecting the information to respect the trust that they earned when infor- when individuals disclosed information to them. Um, now that doesn't mean that disclosures have no place. It just means you can't overinvest in disclosures, right? So it means a you don't look at the fine print at all. B you look at the user's experience interacting with a certain technology because when you're dealing with a mediated technology the user's expectations surrounding what's going to happen are shaped almost entirely by either sort of social communication social interaction with other users or the the design of the technology itself and and that's what we should look to so i wrote a, an article a few years ago called website design as contract where i said what should shape the the contractual obligations of social media entities are is the design of the website itself or the design of the app itself. And so if you lure in users with promises of, of privacy and privacy settings and padlocks and, and kind of create this implicit atmosphere of protection, then you have to live up to that certain amount of protection regardless of what you say in the fine print. Yeah, that's um, a neat spin on what I was thinking because I, I kind of just use a heuristic and that's uh... – you know, if if it's clear, you know, I look at the business model of the company I'm interacting with, and if it's clear to me that they would make their money uh, and would make better money, kind of, if they have no interest in reading my email or or, or otherwise uh, collecting private information, then I have trust. And if I don't see that, then I just assume that they're going to read absolutely everything and have no interest in keeping it secret um, uh, beyond whatever. Um, kind of, you know, um, the, the various uh, federal statutes requiring them to keep certain private data private. Uh, and you're you're going beyond that and saying that uh, maybe another way at this is to help consumers develop those heuristics, not based on knowing something about the business practices of the company, but based on the um, based on their presentation to the to the users of the characteristics of the system. Right. That's that, exactly right. That's exactly and, right. And, but it is a heuristic-based thing. He's basically saying that basically that's the only way human beings make choices about disclosure is by hu- trust, heuris- uh, trust heuristics, right? Yes, that's exactly right. That's a really good phrase, phrasing that. And we can look to what the FTC has done with deceptive advertising, right? So the, the, the FTC has this really interesting 
set of jurisprudence surrounding uh, what you can and can't say in a commercial and what you can't remedy with a disclosure at the very end, right? So you can't make these statements either explicitly or implicitly by, you know, product demonstrations, for example, um, that are false, that create this sort of false expectation. And we should start looking to the design of technologies to see what user expectations are as well. And not just the design, but but kind of what are our, our social conventions and, and what would the average user think sort of going into a technology, knowing what the average user knows about technology. Um, and And so... There are a lot of people that say, oh, I don't care what this company does with my information. They can do anything they want to with it because I get a free thing. I don't really think they mean that, right? I think that what they really mean is um, I probably trust this company not to do this for various reasons, right? One, that it would have certain financial uh, reputational penalties if it did do this. So I'm trusting that it won't, right? And and and. Yeah, and, that example brings us back to the beginning, right? Because a lot of people would say, you know, I don't care if you see me in the grocery store. You know, right. I don't care if you see me getting in the car. And then the minute one person comes up to them and recounts everything they did that day, they're like, oh, my God, I actually did not want you to know all of those things. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> because the, the, the way that you're now acting toward me makes me think that that information can be used to harm me. That's exactly um, right. That's yeah. exactly right. There's a lot of talk about sort of um, – uh, diversity and privacy opinions, like some people are more privacy protective, some people are more kind of exhibitionist in nature. I think that there's a fair degree of that, but I think we have to be really careful not to overstate that because what it could also be is really bad assessment of risk, right? That that we just are really poor at assessing the, the actual risk that we have. And we kind of mask that by saying, oh, well, this is my privacy preference. Um, and so then that brings up questions of, well, do we want to protect people that are really horrible at assessing risk or not? Um, and we get in discussions about, you know, how paternalistic do we want to get, but yeah, but, you know, I, you know, one thing that would be really cool is, uh, is a study of whether, and maybe this has been done, um, privacy preferences and, and, um, and, and other measures of the ways in which people discount their future selves, right? Yeah. So, you know, the, the impulse control is one of those, but so people have different, like, you know, and, uh, people have different measures of the value of their future selves. And this correlates, I guess, with procrastination and other things too. But I wonder if people who are more, maybe exhibitionists is the wrong word, but who care less about controlling privacy protections have a lower value, uh, on their future. You know what I'm, you're yeah, looking at me quizzically, yeah. Joe. I, yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. That would be a great study. I'd love to read that study. Listeners out there, if anyone knows of one or wants to conduct one, please send it to me when you're done. Okay, uh, so so uh, basically you're asking, are Buddhists more likely to dance naked on tables? <laughs> <laughs> like, because, they, because their views of the self are, are of course... They profoundly less significance both in the present and the future. I'm going to I'm going to say I'm going to say something about this in the uh, in the intro to the show before we get on with Woody. So the listeners will have already heard me say something about exactly that. Okay, cool. <laughs> I, yeah, <laughs> uh, but I want to circle back. That's and a just post make, view. That's that's what we call in the biz a post view rather than a preview. Well, yeah. I want to I want to <laughs> circle back for just a second and make sure that I understand because um, I felt like we were getting toward a summation that didn't happen. So oh, the, boy. The, um, <laughs> if, we're, if, if we're talking about... Unconsummated conversation. I know. It's, it's very... You know, um, it's getting yeah, weird over here. Real case of blue brain. Um, oh, so, my God. So, no, listen, oh, my God. Listen, 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 listen. I thought listen. the show could not get any lower, Joe. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to be yeah. part of this. I'm glad. So here's... Uh, so what I think I understood as a, as a sort of um, an approach is um, that... There, there can be uh, software can have the 
what a reasonable person would infer from using the software, the software experience, admitting that that construct, what a reasonable person would infer, allows the people making that inference to import all kinds of both positive and negative aspects to that mental process of spelling out like who you pick to decide what a reasonable person would infer is going to be really important and will have all kinds of consequences. But put that to the side. So you've got what a reasonable person would infer um, based on using the software in, in a, in a, in a typical way. That's one thing. Terms of service that could, that's another thing, right? Where they are in complete harmony with each other. There won't be any, there is very un, unlikely to be any problems, right? Right. Uh, of the, in the form of user surprise. So it's when they diverge that we will have problems. Right. And in the case where they diverge, um, it sounds like what you all were saying was we ought to, we ought to make sure that the inferences that are pro user obscurity trump contrary terms of service that's correct yes that's very well put okay where the the user's mental model um and expectations about how obscure their information is going to be when they disclose it are thwarted then that is um defective design for one um and two possibly deceptive um and 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 we should kind of care about that as a, as a normative matter. And so in that, once you construct it that way, where the, the reasonable user's expectations of degrees of obscurity will always trump any term of service which is less protective, what you then do, I think, is you give providers a really big incentive to come up with terms of service that match really well with how people actually experience using the software. That's right. Uh, because at that point, what the what the provider of the software might think is, well, gosh, I'm gonna. This is what I'm gonna be stuck with. I might as well get the benefit of it by being able to market it and being able to explain it to people and being able to characterize it properly. So I might as well get everything lined up, right? Because this is this is how a neutral decision maker is going to treat it, no matter what I do. Right. So, yes. so I might as well make all those features of what a reasonable person would infer. I might as well make those. My, those are my sale. Those are my points of, of difference. Those are my points to accentuate with users. Then like that's basically my brand because it's going to be what I'm forced to maintain in any event. Right, right. So, my, yeah, my, my point would be you, you can't design a, a technology that by its very design gives users certain impressions and then sort of uh, reap the benefits of what you get from that design um, that might be contrary to user expectations by remedying in the terms of use. And a good example of this is the, the, um, the anonymous app Whisper. Have you, ever, have you heard of Whisper? Um, it's, it's sort of this place where people go and post these confessional apps. And yeah, I've, I've heard of this. I've never seen it, but I've heard of it's it. It's all anonymous. And so they'll say things like... Um, you know, I just wish that my husband would leave me because I've been so miserable for the past eight years, right? And you do it anonymously, and they do it with like a picture as the background, and and people kind of come together in this anonymous community. And and Whisper was very upfront 
about the design of it being anonymous and how it's a safe place to disclose. I think that maybe actually at one point the 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 the, uh, the heads of Whisper said this is the safest place to disclose information on the internet, and they used the word anonymous a lot. And then it turned out that it wasn't so anonymous, right? That there actually were ways for people to figure out who was doing the posting, both internally and externally. And so Whisper then changes their their terms of use, where they say, by the way, when we say anonymous. What we mean is it's unlikely that people will be able to figure out who you are. <laughs> but, of course, people might be able to, right? And you can, like, go to their websites now, and it reflects this new reality. Um, but, of course, if you're still giving that impression by the design of the technology, you can't remedy remedy that by burying it in terms of use. And the, and the FTC has been really clear about this, too. There's the, the Ray Sears case um, where there was a, some spyware on a software, a piece of uh, software that was distributed to users that spied on all their browsing habits. And, they were in, and Sears kind of came out and said, well, we disclosed the, the, the extent of the surveillance in the, in the terms of use of this software. And, and the FTC said, well, you can't remedy that. You can't remedy uh, an obvious consumer expectation by simply burying it in the fine print, particularly about privacy. And so, so I would say the same would be true for, for expectations of obscurity, um, and we should follow through accordingly. You know what I think? I think this is an area where um, – and by this is an area, I mean like the internet, apps, uh, websites – uh, social networks, you know, so it's a pretty big this, but, uh, it's an area where, um, like information is being used in new ways. We've got new kinds of problems and we don't have a good conception of what we're trying to do. And so what's going to happen is we're going to muddle through, we're going to muddle through by looking at examples, using whatever law we have to resolve those examples in acceptable ways and eventually maybe converge on some new conception through the resolution of those examples. It seems to me that's how law would develop here. You know what I mean? That's because right. we just don't have enough. We don't have a good enough store of examples yet. And maybe we never will. Maybe technology changes fast enough that all we ever do is muddle through um, and try to not to disappoint too many people too badly in terms of their own conceptions of privacy since they are not uniform. That's right. And, and because we don't have a, a, a set of rules that we can follow yet. And, and if you look at, at what the, the FTC has done, which is really kind of the most nimble regulator in this space right now, that's exactly what they've been doing. So they've been sort of kind of hammering out the edges of what you can't do with respect to technology and design and privacy. Um, but they haven't, they haven't come out and said, you know, here are the five things that, that you, know, you should look out for that you're not allowed to do. Um, and as long as you follow these five things, then you're set. And it may continue on that way for a while, but but we also are still now kind of getting used to the fact that a huge chunk of our social interaction is now mediated, um, and that's that's something new because mediated social interaction is different than than unmediated because we're limited to the confines of our environment. And, and that's why design is so important. And that's why we should start focusing on it more. So, so I'm actually optimistic that we'll be able to get to a place where at least general rules start to emerge about what you're allowed to, to do. At least I'm going to to start digging around and hopefully maybe be able to isolate a few of them. All right. I think that'll do it. Very cool. Yeah. Thank you so much, Woody, for your your first appearance on thank you on the oral argument podcast it was um, great to do it this was fun